Welcome everyone and thanks for joining us for the next installment of the Rocky Mountain Myrek Short Takes on Suicide Prevention podcast. I'm your host Adam Hofberg and I am delighted today to have Dr. Shane Cross join us. He is an assistant professor of psychology with the University of Nevada at Las Vegas and I'm really excited to have him on here to talk about some of the um, really important work he's doing. So welcome Shane. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Great, Shane. Well, as we always do, uh, let's kind of get a lay of the land and learn a little bit about you and your passion and your interests and how you got involved in your work. Sounds good. Yeah. So I, I just, people ask me this, and um, it started a long time ago. So when I was an undergrad student, I was uh, I was studying emotion and, and doing emotional motion research, uh, and I took I happened to take a human sexuality course, uh, and I really enjoyed it. And uh, there was a professor in there who had incredible some questions. I thought, that's so interesting. So I switched uh, research labs and starting, I started sexual behavior and did that. And of course, I went and worked for a couple of years. And then back in graduate school in Ohio, I started continuing to study sexual behavior as well as addiction. Uh, and then from there, from postdoc, I kept studying it. In the last 10 years, I've been studying sexual behavior uh, and more specifically in veterans probably in the last eight years. So... Yeah, so it's kind of been an evolving area and uh, in the field, so it's been really exciting. Absolutely, and we're so happy to have you on here today to talk about this. Uh, you know, this is kind of a new area. And it's not new, but it's new to many of us and myself and our listeners. So maybe we could um, start about what are, um, you know, addictive behaviors and, and how do they how do they form and, and what kinds of... Uh, subject areas are we talking about when we talk about addictive behaviors? Yeah, so I think it's important to know that when we think about addiction, right, so addiction originally we think when we think about what we call substance use disorders, things like alcohol, op- opioids, you know, cannabis, things like that. So, uh, and But more recently in the last, uh, so since uh, 2013, addiction was kind of reclassified and they added gambling disorder, which is a behavioral, a behavioral disorder, became part of the addictive disorder. So, so addictive disorders or addictive behaviors have kind of been evolving to include both substances you can ingest, which can become addictive, um, including gambling disorders. So, so that's kind of where gam- uh, gambling was recently introduced in the last, you know, eight, nine years, kind of into the addiction framework. And that was really supported by lots of research. Um, around, you know, classic substance use disorders. We also study kind of what we call behavioral addictions, which include gambling disorder, but also other behaviors, things like what we call compulsive sexual behavior, uh, which is really problematic or or compulsive sexual behaviors, things like uh, engaging in risky sexual behavior, problematic pornography use, things like that, uh, engaging in uh, paid sex or risky sex. So these are behaviors which there's still lots and lots of discussion on. Is it an addiction? Is it an impulse control disorder? But what we know is from looking at veterans that it can be a problem for them. And so that's kind of what our research in the last you know, five years has been really focused on understanding what are the problems veterans are having with substance use disorders, with gambling disorder, and then more recently with sexual, what we call compulsive sexual behavior disorder um, as well. Great. Thank you. So when, when, when you think about these, um, I guess it's important to look at things sort of holistically and intersectionally and how, you know, many things don't exist in isolation. So we're not necessarily talking about one or the other. Um, sometimes things uh, present together. Uh, what can you tell us about the relationship between different addictive behaviors and, and uh, the like? 
Yeah, so I would say that when, you know, as a, I'm a clinician myself, and as when I see my patients, when people come in with, you know, substance use disorder, alcohol, you know, opioids, you know, cannabis use, things like that, there's often co-occurring depression, anxiety, sometimes trauma. Um, so when we're doing treatments, we really need to be treating both. The same thing is the, with gambling disorder. When people come in with problematic gambling use, it's not just gambling. Often there's lots, there's issues with depression, anxiety, trauma as well. Um, so so all of these behaviors are co-occurring. Same thing for sexual behavior. So when we look at like compulsive sexual behavior disorder among veterans who come in, we're also seeing high co- you know associations with PTSD, depression, alcohol use. So once again, the, all of these things kind of co-occur. It's unlike it's very rare when someone comes in with just one issue. Often they come in with multiple issues which are impacting their life negatively in many, many ways. So part of our treatment is to look at what we used to call dual diagnosis, in a sense, two conditions. But now we really think about how do we address and treat all these domains of functioning, their life, their family, their health, and how it's all affecting, how these behaviors, both addictive behaviors and other co-occurring issues are affecting them. So, so really there's not just one issue, um, and that's what our research in the last 10 years is kind of demonstrating, that you're not just treating gambling, you're also likely treating alcohol use disorder as well, or something, or depression or PTSD. Okay, and um, is there any evidence around the relationship between gambling and self-directed violence or suicidal thoughts and behaviors? Yeah, so I think, so one of the things that, you know, gambling uh, is, uh, it's really interesting, you know, gambling is uh, probably a $100 billion industry in the U.S., uh, and yet we have very little research funding, probably only $30, $40 million total. Uh, so the, it's very understudied, even though it's a very prevalent behavior. And again, very few people have issues. It's generally a very small percent, but very understudied. But what we do know, which is looking at the literature that's published both in veterans and non-veterans, is that there's an increased association with gambling and suicide. Um, so we definitely see a kind of an increased risk, and studies vary quite a bit, but people, when they've asked problem gamblers or with gambling issues about recent or past lifetime suicide attempts, it's really high, ranging from 15 to 50% have, you know, have had or ha- are having suicidal uh, issues. We've done some research on that recently, but we're writing up. We haven't published work on a number of papers, but we're finding very, very high associations between current suicidality or past suicide attempts with current problem gambling in veterans. So, so we think gambling disorder uh, is definitely something to be screened given such its high co-occurrence with trauma and suicide and other substance use disorders for veterans. Yeah, that's really helpful. I think you make a good case, and there's you know pretty good evidence here that this is an important issue. And so, um, you know, how does this relate back to veterans and their families, and and making sure that they get the right care and and are asking the right questions? Yeah, I think one of the things that we we really are trying to understand is um, we we have a couple of things. Well, first thing, we, we need to get a better understanding of prevalence. Meaning, how often is, are these happening for veterans and different for veterans from different eras, from different generation between men and women and really understanding how to gambling how to sex compulsive sex behavior disorder substance use how common is it and what does it occur with and the reason why that's important is when we think about screening for trauma or PTSD or substance use 
we should also be thinking about screening for these other behaviors too because they're so they're, they co-occur. So I think that's one of the things we should be thinking about. But I think the other thing we need to be looking at is what is the stigma? What are the barriers to care for, for our veterans or for their family members or for our community for them for seeking help for gambling problems or for sexual behavior or for PTSD or for having suicidal issues with suicidal, suicidal ideation. These are the things that we still don't have a great understanding of. And I think that though that's where the research has to go. And that's some of our current work um, because we really are having treating veterans, having experienced many years treating veterans with these issues. We know that stigma and shame are such strong uh, barriers and they prevent people from disclosing this to their family, to their to their provider, their VA provider, or for other people. So we need to really change the conversation and normalize that gambling disorder happens across all groups, and so does compulsive sexual behavior, and, and so does substance use, and so does trauma. So we really have to change the conversation. The other last point I would say that I think is really important is gambling, eating, and sexual behavior are often tied to morality, meaning people make moral judgments around people who might have issues with eating behaviors or have issues with being overweight or obesity or with gambling or sexual behavior. So the, so when we survey people in the community and we say, well, someone morally weak because they have a gambling problem, you know, 70, 80% of people will say yes. But if we tie that to something else, another addiction, generally it's much lower. And we really should want it to be lower. It's concerning that people assume that someone with a gambling problem uh, or a veteran with a sexual problem is, uh, in a sense, morally weak or wrong, or you know, a bad quote a bad person. And I think that's something that has to change if we're going to increase people seeking help and disclosing problems. Is there anything about maybe military service or potentially any any features of being a veteran that maybe makes somebody more likely to engage in these kind of behaviors? You know, so I think this is something that's an, a great question, and I think I, I've gotten asked this, and I think we're still trying to figure this out. But I, what I would say is that, you know, we when we look at coping and we look at uh, addictions, we know that um, substance use and other behaviors, gambling, is often associated with, you know, it, it becomes what we call maladaptive and healthy coping. So people who use gambling or substance use um, often might use that to cope with, PTSD or depression or, you know, stress or other issues. Well, we kind of, through kind of clinical work uh, that we've been seeing with veterans, and I think our research is also trying to explore this, are also thinking that some of the sexual behavior as well, problematic use pornography, some of the sexual risk-taking, might also be kind of a, another way to cope or to deal with negative, you know, mental health issues or challenges. Because we know from a very basic neurobiological perspective that Substance use, gambling, sex produces kind of a, a dopamine, a response, a, it's a pleasure, a reward-seeking. Uh, so, so for some people, this might be what's happening. We just don't have great research yet to really explore that. We've seen that more with clinical, with veterans seeking clinical care and working with them understanding that sometimes they're turning sexual behavior. And this might have started in the military or po- you know, after discharge when they're really having issues with PTSD or something else. And I kind of wanted to uh, take it two more directions, kind of a very sort of um, current event kind of focus with with COVID-19 and also just the age of social media and the Internet and how, you know, uh, so maybe starting there, like how is the role of the Internet um, impacting any of these behaviors, uh, potentially also, 
with you know online gambling, but obviously also um, internet and pornography and and things like that. And then taking that really really current just. What, what are the implications with COVID right now and restrictions at casinos and how is this impacting people? Yeah, so, okay, so first question, I, I think one thing that's, uh, the internet's really revolutionized the world, right? And it's really, is, it's used for many things, but one of the things that's been used quite heavily for is it facilitates sexual behavior, right? Whether it's pornography use, it's sexual connections with other people. And there's nothing, there's been no other medium that's ever done this. I mean, the internet really is used frequently for pornography. It's used to connect. We, we've actually written on this and actually published, you know, on veterans, looking at veterans who are using smartphone apps to connect or have hookup with other, with other folks online and some of the risk factors with that. And, and what we found is that veterans who are hooking up online with other folks are often having the most mental health issues. Um, so we have concerns about hookups sometimes might be sometimes risk factors or might be putting veterans and non-veterans in situations that are, could be risky and potentially harmful. So, so I would say that our research, you know, the clients seeking our treatment, often we're seeing coming in for pornography issues because it's prevalent and accessible. I think that's not going to change. I think the Internet has revolutionized the world in many, many great ways. And sexual behavior is just one thing that's going to always probably be tied to the Internet. Um, so I think it's something for us to think about, and that's also facilitating online gambling and online social media. And I think these are things we should be thinking about how people are engaging online and, and how it can be healthy and also when it can be problematic and what to look for to, for, for those folks. Um, because from the few studies we've done with, with veterans that we've now recently published, we're seeing some of these behaviors can be concerning, and particularly for for the veterans who do these, uh, you know, who are hooking up or, or in online activities and maybe not be engaging or maybe engaging in really risk behaviors as well. So, so I think that cover, I think it's an important for us, something for us to think about and also for clinicians and researchers to be thinking about how, what are, you know, when we have a client comes in to care, how do we have a conversation around their sexual behavior, their sexual health, what are they doing online as well as offline? I think all of that should be discussed. Fast forward to your other question about COVID-19, you're right. So this is uh, kind of here in Las Vegas, and they've really been shutting down all the casinos for the next two months, and this has never happened. And it's a huge uh, thing that's happening across the, the country. And it'll be interesting to see what are the consequences, you know, how that's going to play out. And do we see sharp increases on, you know, Internet ga gambling online? It's something that for, for us to think about, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it seems like this is kind of, um, and again, I all respect this is a, a issue not to be taken lightly, and, and of course, um, but it's a natural experiment in some ways. Um, it's a situation that you could never, you know, experimentally induce. It's, it's you know, closing down all the gambling outlets um, may have some consequences among problem gamblers, I would only assume. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that would be a gr an interesting. I, my I, my hunch would be though uh, is that people with problem gambling might, or generally are are also already in gambling online and using internet facilitated means. So I think that would increase. I think the vast majority of people who gamble are, are recreational or non have no problems. So I think. Las Vegas community and other communities often most of the profit generated is not from gambling but from non-gambling activities. So I think what we'll see is a sharp we might see a sharp increase for those with problem gambling, but I don't think any other groups will move. 
And so um, if somebody were a family member of a veteran or, you know, perhaps a veteran themselves, what kind of um, issues are you looking at in terms of separating, you know, somebody who recreationally gambles to, you know, what we think of as problem gambling? Yeah, so I think when we think about problem gambling, we're looking for, uh, you know, just so we know the rates are pretty low, right? So for one thing, a gambling disorder, which is the, you know, diagnostic formal term, the rates are very, very low for, for disordered use, maybe like less than 1%, they vary, but for veterans, it might be a little bit higher, we're thinking 2-3%, although we don't have great data on that. So um, I think what I'm looking for and what I teach clinicians to look for and what I, I hope family members are asking is, is how it, what relationship does the person have with gambling? Is gambling becoming a problem? Is it interfering with their ability to connect with their family, pay their bills, you know, be... Is is there evidence that it's kind of really having an issue for them? So because just because someone gambles, you know, it could be once a week, it doesn't mean it's problematic. Frequency itself is not necessarily what we're thinking about for problem or disordered gambling. Looking for interference and, and issues with their functioning relationships, their work, you know, their their commitments, those things, right? So so that's kind of what we're looking for. Yeah. Okay. That's helpful. That kind of that interference level, not not so much the gambling itself. Exactly. And like when people come, you know, also, for example, difficulty kind of stopping and things. You know, I'm going to take a break this month. And after they tried and they weren't successful, that that's, you know, uh, that could be a sign that, hey, there's maybe this person's having some difficulty stopping. They, they stop for a month, you know, for a couple of weeks and they're very irritable and they're very upset and are having a hard time with that. Well, that's that's likely a sign that something's going on versus someone who stops for a month and doesn't have an issue and do some, does something else. That's, I think, what we're looking for is that difficulty stopping or, you know, changing one's behavior. Right, right. And if, and if a veteran uh, is experiencing this or a family member's concerned, how would they go about uh, sort of that next step to ask for help and to start this conversation? As you mentioned, this is a challenging topic uh, for, a, for a variety of reasons. And so I just want to maybe talk us through that yeah so i think what i think the first thing to do is really if it's you know a family member if it's a spouse or a partner i think to sit down and really with them and, and talk with them about this i think the va has some really great resources on this already you know they put out on internet you know online um i think to talk with the veteran first about these issues and then really encourage them to maybe talk with their primary care physician, maybe their, maybe a mental health, if they have some mental health, you know, clinician to really have this conversation further with them um, and see where they can go. You know, the VA has several residential programs, one in Las Vegas and one in Cleveland for gambling disorder. So there are services. Most veterans who have problem gambling don't need that level of intense services often very simple kind of basic support from their family members working with a mental health provider can be sufficient to really help them kind of reevaluate their choices and may make some changes in their life. So I think often we've seen lots of veterans make great changes and with, you know, with not too much treatment, really you can do some of this uh, with starting this conversation and reevaluating one's behavior in life. Yeah, it's good good to know that there are resources both within the VA and the community. And, you know, I was uh, browsing through some of your recent publications, and I noticed that you're also piloting a brief mindfulness-based intervention for gambling disorder. Is is uh, Could you say more about that? 
Yeah, so so we've we've been really interested. You know, mindfulness is kind of a huge buzzword. Everyone uses it for everything, but but we've been really curious about the idea of mindfulness being applied to uh, addiction, and that's been studied. And there's a type of just called mindfulness-based relapse prevention, uh, and it's kind of an approach of using mindfulness within uh, an addiction framework to treat you know addictive disorders. And we've applied it to gambling, compulsive sexual behavior, and eating disorder in veterans within a clinical setting, actually at the Behavioral Addiction Clinic in Bedford, Massachusetts, and that really had success with the helping veterans slow down, learn mindfulness-based skills, learn to urge, uh, surf with urges, and uh, really understand what the relationship with gambling, what's going on with that, and how can they, if they're not going to gamble, how do they use skills to, in a sense, not do that? And we've had really great success with that. It's a uh, eight-session or eight you know, eight appointments, uh, treatment, uh, and it seems to be really helpful for gambling so far. So we're, we're really excited about that. Um, but I think there are a number of treatments have been really successful with gambling disorder as well. Any other treatments that you wanted to highlight? Yeah, so I, so I think one point to really make is, uh, is that when we think about gambling disorder is that, um, a number of prefer treatments often. So sometimes people think if someone has a problem, oh gosh, I need to send them to a residential program or they need to do, you know, 10 or 12 weeks of this. And what we know is that for many, many folks, probably 50, 60, 70% brief interventions, one, two, three appointments, four appointments with mental health provider can be enough to really help them make some changes in their life to get to kind of move from problematic gambling to, you know, to non-gambling or something else. So, so I think there's some treatments that are, have been published that really suggest that many veterans can really respond well to treatment for gambling. It's not something that's going to, um, that you can definitely do at the VA or within your mental health provider. Um, it just means that veterans might have to reevaluate the relationship with gambling, and gambling may not be something that's still part of their life, you know, after treatment. And I think that's often sometimes a hard shift for folks. So. And how about for uh, problematic sexual behavior? What kind of uh, treatment modalities are available yeah, so so that's a that's kind of a newer area. So you know, really up until recently, you know, it, there's you know, it used to be called sex addiction or hypersexual disorder, and now with I, uh, more recently, it's been kind of reclassified as what we call compulsive sexual behavior disorder, and that's kind of a newer field, and we're doing just some of the early work on that, and we've also been testing in mindfulness-based relapse prevention. Um, as well as what we call acceptance and commitment therapy. So these are two different type of treatments that we so far are finding nice, uh, you know, evidence for helping veterans with these issues. Um, and they've been studied with other problems, you know, addiction, depression. Uh, so these approaches have been applied to other issues. And when we apply them to sexual behavior, we find them helping both the sexual problems as well as the depression and, you know, other trauma and other issues. Because, again, you're not just treating gambling, sexual behavior, also treating depression, anxiety, and other co-occurring mental health issues for veterans. Fascinating. Great. So you mentioned, uh, you know, this is still, most of this research is still relatively in the earlier stages, um, even like, for example, uh, just identifying these these behaviors potentially as actual disorders. Um, so what are some questions that we still need to answer, and, and where do you see us going uh, from here? with your research and both uh, the wider field as a whole? Yeah, so I'll start with gambling first. So I think with gambling, we still need to, we, need, we, have a, we still have some basic questions. I think we know that gambling is a, a addictive disorder. That's been well established. But one of the things we need to figure out is how prevalent is uh, gambling disorder uh, or what we call sub-threshold. So 
people with some problems and not, you know, they haven't met diagnostic criteria, so we call that problem gambling. What are, what's the prevalence uh, in active duty uh, military and versus, you know, retired, you know, veteran? Uh, so we don't, we don't really have great data on that yet. So I think some of the basic things with veterans that we need to figure out is prevalence, how common is it? What conditions is it is often found in, and then more, and then what treatments are going to be most effective for these issues? Because again, you're not just treating gambling; you're often treating PTSD, substance use, and other issues for veterans. And we know veterans, compared to non-veterans, have much higher rates of mental health issues and other challenges. You know, with those who returned, uh, who've been transitioned back. Um, so, so it's, there's a, a lot of unique challenges, and I think some of that really hasn't been fully fleshed out for, for gambling and, and for, for addiction issues. For compulsive sexual behavior disorder, I think it's still new because this disorder was only recently accepted by the International Classification of Diseases, 11th edition. So it's called ICD-11, and it was actually just accepted as a disorder, an impulse control disorder, in June of 2019. So it's brand new. So we still have to study this and understand, well, how common is it? Does it vary between men and women, veterans and non-veterans? What uh, cultural and diverse diversity considerations do we have? How does it vary and differ across cultures and countries? So there's a lot of basic questions we have with sexual behavior, compulsive sexual behavior disorder. And then more, and then past that, how do we screen for it? How do we assess, you know, how do we screen and assess for it and how do we treat it? So these are kind of I think areas that in the next four or five years we're really going to be doing lots of really exciting research with, with we hope, with military and then also non-military on both sexual behavior and gambling disorder specifically. Excellent. Well, I think uh, needless to say, we'd love to have you back to continue to update us on these, uh, you know, emerging topics. Um, I guess uh, just as we wind down, one other question, and we've touched on this a bit, but it's just like, you know, what would you say to veterans or families, any parting message that you want to get across in terms of how they can seek help, start these conversations, and, and really also to the clinicians, you know, if you're identifying these, how do you approach this with a veteran that you're working with? So I think to the veterans, uh, I would say that we, if you're having any of these issues that we've discussed, to really we we really ask you to seek help and disclose that to loved ones and to, you know, if, uh, if you're in the VA, to VA providers or the healthcare providers, because really there are treatments and there are ways definitely to help you, uh, you know, become the person you really want to be and, and, and be much happier and healthier. And, and we really can and should be helping you for that. So, um, so I would encourage you to, to, to come forward with the, with clinicians. I, we, emphasize a lot to really be screening and asking and creating space. We really want veterans to be able to disclose any issues they're having so we can fully support them. And I think clinicians, we're working with clinicians, really ask questions because often when we ask, we get response. We're hearing there are issues. This, these behaviors are actually relatively not uncommon in veterans. There are actually much higher rates uh, for both sexual behavior and gambling in veterans compared to non-veterans. So really asking veterans is necessary if we're going to really be looking at issues with trauma, suicide, substance use. We have to be thinking about all of these behaviors because you're not just treating one issue, you're treating the person. Uh, and that's something we should really be having a conversation with. So, so I would really, and then for family members of veterans, I would just encourage them to continue to work and support their veteran who are having some of these issues and know that we have had much success in VA. Uh, treating both the partner, the veteran and their partner and their families with these issues. And having done this for a while and treating a lot of patients, 
I, I'm always excited and rewarded to see veterans improve their lives and be happier and healthier after treatment. And treatment does work if, if someone's willing to kind of ask for help and engage in, you know, engage in treatment for these issues. Wonderful. Well, thanks for those really kind of positive notes to end on. Um, and uh, I want to echo your, your thoughts, which are that there's, there's wonderful treatments available and um, encourage both sides, the veterans and their family and the clinicians to really explore these topics. Well, with that, folks, uh, I think that's going to wrap up today's episode. We really appreciate you for tuning in, and we are always available to have a continued conversation. So if you have any comments, questions, feedback, thoughts, uh, please share it with us, and we'll be happy to um, get back in touch with you. If you liked what you heard today, uh, give us a review, share with a colleague or friend, and until next time, join us for more important interviews on work in veterans' mental health and suicide prevention.